welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence Podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 41, 3rd Nephi 27 through 4th Nephi. There could not be a happier people. Rod welcomes back Lynette Hadley Reed. He sets the stage with 3rd Nephi and the Savior's beautiful teachings to the Nephite people. He also shares more of some of the resources, which has outlined much of ancient America's history with the mound builders. Lynette shares some of the findings that she has uncovered of sacred teachings and temples. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody. One of my favorite podcasts here. We're going to have a, a great time. We have uh, with us today, we have Lynette Hadley-Reed, dear friend of mine, and she's a, uh, she is a scholar and uh, an amazing individual. <laughs> We're going to learn a lot from her today. Uh, we are actually working on, uh, this is lesson number 41. This is 3rd Nephi chapters uh, 27 uh, through the end of 3rd Nephi and then also 4th Nephi. And I said there could not be a happier people. We're going to be talking about uh, today. So again, if you have your uh, your, your manuals here, uh, go ahead and, and uh, hopefully you've gone over those already. And we're going to basically be going into the the, the annotated Book of Mormon. This is going to start today on uh, 422, page 422 of your annotated edition of the Book of Mormon here. And uh, so we're going to start off a little bit uh, today, Lynette, with a. Um, um, kind of just covering really just briefly some of these some of these things, and then we want to go into some some amazing research that you've been able to do over the last uh, several years that I think people find fascinating. But before we do that, can you go ahead and just give us a little introduction to yourself <laughs> again? Now you've you've done other ones previously, but just in case they missed those. Well, I, I am independent scholar, but. Uh you know, I'm grateful to have had the interest and the desire to learn, and I appreciate coming to know Rod Meldrum and all he has introduced me and some of my family to the Heartland, um, Heartland um, evidences of the Heartland supporting the Book of Mormon, and they are so powerful. There are so many more of them than we found in Mesoamerica, and I'll be happy to share with some of those with you today. Yeah, well, fantastic. Okay, so let's go ahead and grab your uh, your scriptures handy, if you have them there, and uh, turn with me to uh, 3rd Nephi chapter 27. And uh, the beginning of this, actually, uh, Christ is instructing his uh, his 12 disciples. And they actually, uh, it's kind of interesting, he says, he showed, he showed himself again unto them. So he'd, this is sometime after the uh, all of the, the visits that, that, you know, when he was there with them at the Temple in Bountiful. Um, now they have, uh, he says that they came to pass that as the disciples of Jesus were journeying, were preaching the things which they had both heard and seen, and were baptized in the name of Jesus. It came to pass that the disciples were gathered together, united in mighty prayer and fasting, and, and Christ showed himself unto them again. Um, and they and he said, uh, Christ asked him the question, what shall I give you? It's interesting, uh, Christ doesn't usually just come forward and just say, uh, okay, I need you to know this and this and this. He asks them, what do you need? What 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 is the question that's on your mind? And he says that, the, and they said to him, Lord, we will that thou wouldst tell us the name whereby we uh, shall call this church for their disputations among the people concerning this matter. What what are we going to call ourselves? <laughs> okay. And of course, then we have the famous uh, uh, sermon, essentially by Christ, that he said that if it's not if if, if the church be after the name of a man, then it's a man's church. If it be after my name, then it's my church. 
So it need to be named after me. Yes, and you know, there's this beautiful um, scripture in Jeremiah about being called by his name. And uh, someone, well, Crawford Gates actually saw that and built a, wrote a beautiful hymn about he, how uh, he had found the words of God and ate them and they brought joy to his life. And then he sings this, wrote this beautiful home, hymn, I am called by his name, I am called by his name, I am called by his name, Lord God of hosts. And that is a very powerful hymn, and I love it, because to be called by the name of the Lord of hosts is a wonderful and marvelous thing. You bet. You bet. That's fantastic. Um, then, then he says, if it be built upon the works of men or upon the works of the devil, before uh, verily I say unto you, this is in verse 11, uh, they have joy in their works for a season, but by and by the end cometh and they are hewn down and cast into the fire. So it may may mm-hmm. seem good if you uh, want to um, build your works on the works of of Satan, but uh, and, and and you may seem like they're 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 doing pretty well for a while, but ultimately it's all for naught. And not only that, but he doesn't support those who support him. <laughs> In the end, I mean, it's totally useless <laughs> to follow, the, follow Satan. <laughs> yeah. Well, then Christ, uh, basically, he defines his gospel. He kind of gives us a really good rundown on what his gospel is. And uh, so you can, and, and of course, you have read that if you've already done the lesson there. Um, he also mentions about no unclean thing can enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is in uh, verses 19, it says, um, that the, therefore nothing entered into his rest, save it be those who have washed their garments in my blood because of their faith and their repentance and their faithfulness unto the end. So that's basically um, a time element that goes on. You have to have faith in the, to, to begin with, and then you have to have your repentance and so forth, but then you have to continue on to the end. Correct. <laughs> Which, uh, when you get to be uh, my age or, or your age, basically, <laughs> or our age, I should say, then uh, that enduring to the end part becomes a little more challenging. <laughs> I know. I remember seeing Elder Marion G. Romney, who, in his age, very elderly, saying he prayed that he could endure to the end. And I thought, wow. <laughs> I thought if he didn't feel I was there yet, that uh, we know he did it. Yeah. And we know we can too. <laughs> I guess. I guess when it says, you know, not to uh, to endure or to endure to the end, it means basically you're never ever going to quit. That's true. <laughs> so That's uh, true. not only the end of this life, but for, to the end of uh, forever, really, when it comes down to it. To never lose hope or faith. Yeah, and we always have that opportunity to repent, and uh, and and then just keep just keep. Keep on keeping on, as they say, right? So he says, this is my gospel, and you know the things that you must do in my church, is verse 21. Uh, for the works which I have, which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. Therefore, if ye do these things, blessed are ye, for ye shall be lifted up at the last day. So that's the reason why it's so important that we follow Christ, but we can't really follow Christ unless we really understand him and unless we study what he did and get some ideas as to why he did many of the things that he did. Without that understanding, I don't think we can really effectively be like him. And to know his amazing love, the fullness of his love, which 
reaches back to all of those who ever lived on the earth eventually. That's one of the things we know is that his love is so full, so immense, that no one who's ever lived on the earth will not have the opportunity of hearing his gospel and of receiving his beautiful ordinances. That's what we are taught and understand. And most Christians believe that those who died before Christ are damned to hell. Those who in China and North Korea who are denied hearing Christ will be damned to hell. This isn't a God of love. If we truly know him, we know he is a God of love, a full love for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to meet with an entire kind of a school from Scottsdale, Arizona, who came up and they uh, they were evangelicals and so forth. And they wanted to learn about these so-called evidences for the Book of Mormon. Uh, they really didn't want to hear that too much about that, <laughs> but they wanted to argue more. But, but, but one of the things that I think struck them, as I described, um, a God um, that is of a, 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 a God of mercy, a God of love. Um, many different uh, denominations really look at God as more of a, uh, you know, the all-powerful, you know, uh, you know, the bringer of justice, and uh, and and so forth. And it's and there's almost like a, a scariness to him. But not justice for everyone. Uh, salvation for the yeah. few chosen ones, but not for everyone. Yeah. So, yeah, and and uh, we had I think it made made them really think when I explained to them how this whole plan of salvation is is such a wonderful plan, and people basically will have to make their own choice as to how if they want to uh, be with Christ or or if they don't feel comfortable being around Christ, it'll almost be more of that more of their choice. So uh, then it gets into basically in uh, in uh, in verse twenty eight. Um, he starts to talk about the uh, the twelve disciples of, that Christ had uh, had set up, and these twelve disciples had now been going out and doing some missionary work, and they had were having tremendous success. Apparently, he says, "You know, I, I'm a little bit concerned because once you get down to the fourth generation, uh, they could be looking at gold and silver." And uh, he he said this. He said in verse 32, "But behold, it start with me because of the fourth generation from this generation." For they are led away captive by him, even as was the son of perdition. Now that's an interesting thing. The son of perdition basically is something that we know about in the in the gospel, but uh, we don't have. Uh, there's not when it comes down to the plan of salvation. That's something that we know is an integral part of the plan of salvation. It's the the, the outer darkness, the sons of perdition. Um, not everybody, not other, not all other religions understand what that even is. But that tells you that they knew about the plan of salvation. For they will sell me for silver and for gold. In other words, for monetary gain, they'll sell out their understanding of their belief in Christ. They'll begin to worship silver and gold rather than Christ again. Yep, yep. And for that which the moth doth corrupt and which thieves can break through and steal. And in that day will I visit them even in turning their works upon their own heads. Um, and then the, the disciples, basically, he said to the disciples, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And as I look at that, I really um, realize you know, how blessed we are as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mean, we are only 16-plus uh, million members. If you look at the entire population of the earth, I mean, it's a tiny little percentage. It's about right. 1 or 2% of the entire earth. And out of that 16 million, how many are going to be able to, to find and enter into the celestial kingdom? So it truly is. When he says, narrow is the way 
that leads to life, and few there be that find it. He's talking about it like less than 1% of his children finding it. Although we do know there were times in the past when God's people were on the earth, and yeah. so that will be added to somewhat. <laughs> yeah. And we will... There will and there's the, the people from the, from the city of Enoch and uh, right. the ten tribes and, uh, and so, so forth that, uh, that will add to that number. And there will be work done in the millennium, but it will still Except. be straight and narrow. Yes, exactly. And then, the, and then you have an interesting thing where you have the nine of the twelve disciples. Uh, Christ uh, basically asks them a question again. He says, what is it you desire of me after that I am gone to the Father? So again, he's asking them a question. What do you want? (laughs) And nine of them basically say, uh, we want to live until we're at a a ripe age, basically, and then we want to come speedily into thy kingdom. He said unto them, blessed are you because you desire this thing of me. Therefore, after you are 72 years old, that must be the ultimate time to... (laughs) Pass through the veil <laughs> for them at that time. Okay, <laughs> I'm not through yet. <laughs> yes, that's right. Ye shall come unto me in my kingdom, and with me ye shall find rest. And so they're supposed to work their tails off while they're still here, while they still have the energy and strength and so forth. But when they get to be 72 years old, bam. <laughs> They're going to uh, cross over the veil and um, and come back to him. You know, isn't this a wonderful promise, though? Because I think oftentimes he gives us our choices mm-hmm. um, according to our righteous desires. And so he does, doesn't dictate everything to us. He does hear our righteous desires, and he does respond to them. It really I'm is true. I mean, it, so they, they um, now the other three, though, they were kind of <laughs> hanging back. I can kind of foresee that they're kind of going, well, you know, that's, gosh, I, I can imagine if I was one of them going, did we blow it? I mean, he just gave them, you know, he's, they're going to have this rest. Um, he says, um, what will ye that I should do unto you when I am gone unto the Father? Uh, they sorrowed in their hearts, for they durst not speak unto him the thing which they desired. Why do you think that would be the case? They probably thought the it was, there. They thought, <laughs> perhaps they thought it was too hard to give them, but um, but it wasn't. <laughs> Well, if you think about it, I mean, yeah, how many, how many of us, when given the opportunity to, you know, like a, like a genie out of a lamp or something kind of thing, would say, um, I don't want to ever die. <laughs> I mean, that's not something you would even entertain in your mind, really. Right. But here we have uh, these, 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 uh, these disciples. But why is it that they didn't want to die? Not because they just wanted to live forever. Yes, because they wanted to keep serving their God. They wanted God. to serve, that's right. And, they wanted to keep and their serving. fellow men. So they wanted to have an unending uh, service mission. <laughs> and Christ basically said this, and I love this. Um, he said unto them in verse 6, this is again still um, chapter 27, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. So this is the same thing as John the Revelator wanted. Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye, are, ye shall never taste of death. Ye shall live to behold uh, all the things, all the doings of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the powers of heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's all the way back down to the second coming when he comes in his glory right ye shall never endure pains of death 
when I shall come into my um, but when I shall come into my glory, you shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, from mortality to immortality, and then shall you be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. Um, that sounds like the millennium because that's how I think everybody ends up dying in the millennium. There's no there's no de- death during the millennium. It's, a tw- it's you're you're twinkled. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're transformed from mortality to immortality. Uh, when you reach the age of a tree, I think it says, in the, during the millennium. <laughs> so they'll have no more pain. Then it says, in verse 15, it tells a little bit about that process. It says, and whether they were in the body or out of the body, they could not tell, for it did seem unto them like a transfiguration of them, that they were changed from this body of flesh into an immortal state. So it kind of sounds like translated beings, really. Yes. So they wouldn't die. Now um, that we're gonna we're gonna uh, just quickly that in, in chapter um, twenty nine here. See, but by the way, that was chapter twenty eight. In chapter twenty nine, uh, he talks about this covenant, which we've been talking about this entire year <laughs> about this mm-hmm. covenant between the Lord and the house of Israel, and it says that and the, the Lord will remember this covenant. Uh, that's in, in verse three of chapter twenty nine. He also, uh, again, he, he basically says, uh, do not spurn the Lord or his doings, and specifically, don't spurn his people. I guess, mm. what, what do you think spurn means? Well, to not accept, to reject with uh, mm-hmm. haughtiness, with <laughs> mockery, with... Uh, exactly. Yes. Disrespect. Exactly. And verse 80 says, Yea, ye need not any longer hiss, nor spurn, nor make game of the Jews. In other words, mocking the Jews, nor any other remnant of the house of Israel. For behold, the Lord remembereth his covenant unto them, and he will do unto them according to that which he hath sworn. So even though they have been um, divided and separated and been spread out among all the nations of the earth and so forth, they have now been gathered back in. And the Lord remembers his people. Even though they have rejected him a couple of different times, um, he still believes in them and that they're going to come back and return and be a part of his covenant people. And so he's telling us, just because they have been a hiss and a byword in the past, uh, you, you better be, pay attention to the, uh, to the house of Israel because they're going to be coming back like a lion. They have not been cast off forever. That's right. That's right. Okay, so that, that let's let's go to uh, the fourth Nephi. We're going to just uh, touch a few things on here. Um, fourth Nephi, basically, uh, I, I love this. This is some uh, some pretty amazing uh, commentary that's going on here. Um, they talk about the effect of the coming of Christ to the Nephites. How did it affect their culture, their civilization, and uh, and 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 uh, how many years did it take? Did that did that last? That's what we want to talk about. And uh, Lynette, why don't you take it away with, us, with some information there? <laughs> well, yes, and I love what the scriptures say that there was never a happier people during this time. When Christ came, yeah. he did have a powerful effect upon their lives. And the wonderful thing is that there is physical evidence which shows that, which actually shows, supports the Book of Mormon. 
So you know, what, what kind of physical evidence are you talking about here? <laughs> well, first, first I want to say there is physical evidence both in um, other parts of the Americas as well as the heartland. And that makes sense because we know actually that Christ did visit more than one people. Absolutely. Okay, he visited many throughout the Americas. And so naturally there would be some evidence in throughout the Americas of Christ visiting them and, and of changes in their culture. However, the evidences in, in North America are so much wider and broader and more powerful. And uh, and I, you know, they say that a reason we haven't found a lot of evidences in Mesoamerica is because they're all buried under jungles. And that may be true, but I, I really believe Christ wanted us to find them. And so, we do indeed find great uh, evidences of changes in Mesoamerica. Okay, I'm just going to need to take just a just a minute here for those who are not really familiar with the Hopewell Mound Builder people and uh, who these people are that we believe to be the Nephites, essentially. Um, let me kind of tell you a little bit about that. So, you got the, the very first book ever published by the, about this people was were the uh, this book called Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, right there. And uh, it was actually published as the very first book ever published by the Smithsonian. And it was actually published by E.G. Squire and Edward Davis. Uh, they went out and surveyed a lot of these mounds and so forth. That today, uh, it's now been estimated there are over one million mound sites, and many of those sites have multiple mounds in it. So this is why the people in this time frame, called the Middle Woodland Period, actually are called the Mound Builder people. So I want to just show you that I have many more of these, but there's some other books here that uh, just talk about this. Is the Mound Builders of, of uh, Ancient America right here. Uh, this is actually Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Again, this is an older edition of that book, showing some of the original edition stuff here. This is actually, it's called A View from the Core, a synthesis of Ohio Hopewell archaeology. I have dozens of books like this. Uh, the Mound Builders here, um, and this is talking about Edward Case, Forgotten Record of Ancient America, and uh, some other things there. This is a, uh, an interesting book. It's called He Walked the Americas. Lent has, uh, has her copy of that right here as well. We have a newer edition of that right here. This is what it looks like. He Walked the Americas. You can actually get that from our bookstore if you want to get a copy of that. And then just other interesting things. Like, for example, um, this people were so um, amazingly advanced. They actually have this, this book is called An Archaeology of the Sacred. Because of, because there is so much um, symbolism that has been uh, discovered in this is the Adena Hopewell uh, astronomy and landscape archaeology. This is the, they were looking to the heavens uh, for a lot of the information that they were that they were actually putting into these gigantic earthworks. So I'm going to put these back here for a second. Um, also, um, so so if we can go to the, the slides here for just a second. So this is Antiquities of the State of New York. This was a book that was done back in 1851 uh, by Squire. This is, this is after he did this original book here, which was actually 1848. <clears throat> and it was commissioned again by the Smithsonian Institute. In this, it talks about the contents here. If you take a look at number seven, this is the Hopewell. This is uh, 100 BC to AD 400. Now, <laughs> we are talking about a time frame here from when Christ came to the Nephites to about 400 A.D., right, according to the right. Book of Mormon. So this is exactly in the time frame of the Book of Mormon that we're talking about here, and specifically in this 200 years of peace 
that are, that are, that's coming up here. So uh, who who are these people? This is talking about this uh, this map is by again by the Mound Builders of Ancient America by Robert Silverberg. This is uh, he's talking about uh, Poverty Point, which you can see down in the south. Uh, west, the southeastern part of the United States, basically Louisiana and up into uh, that area. Um, and then there's the Adena culture. The Adena culture uh, was about uh, from 500 BC up, um, down to about 100 BC. And you can see that that is kind of in the northeastern part of the United States with the, with the double lines there going, going horizontally. And you can see basically up in the Pennsylvania, New York, and Ohio and so forth, that's where the Adena culture was. They overlap somewhat with the later Hopewell culture, which came into this area about 100 B.C. to 400 A.D. Now, I love this overlay because basically uh, it was, you know, the, the Nephites actually, if, the, if our geography is correct, and they started off about 500 B.C. down in the Gulf Coast, and they moved up into Tennessee area um, in, in, in the land of Nephi area. But it wasn't until Zarahemla and Bountiful were established that they were actually up in this area, which actually, according to the Book of Mormon, started about 100 years before Christ, mm-hmm. 100 B.C., and then ended at 400 A.D. So uh, this was an exact match with the Book of Mormon time frames. Um, they built these uh, structures with the ditches and the earth banks, just as being described, and, and Lynette's going to talk a lot more about that. I wanted to share with you a couple of other quick things here in regard to this. These are just some of the things that she's going to be talking about here. Um, but the, for example, the Hope, the Hopewell Earthworks um, excavations at Hopeton. The team found charcoal. Six trenches yielded radiocarbon dates between AD 150 and 250 AD. So this is the radiocarbon dating. It right that, that dates into the middle of the uh, the Book of Mormon uh, time frame of this great time of peace that we're about to talk about. Um, Greber found charcoal and post holes at High Bank Works, radiocarbon dated about 1,900 years ago, which again puts us at about 100 A.D. This is about the same time as what the uh, as Christ was there. Um, now, the interesting thing that they talked about this: the, these are gigantic earthworks, <laughs> massive structures. The uh, the ones that we're talking about here in uh, in Ohio um, would have taken literally hundreds of thousands of man hours, basically. Um, to haul, to, to dig out dirt and then haul it in baskets and then, and then pile it up and just do this over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands and even millions of times. Um, the, uh, the, the, the archaeology there in Ohio is such that they said, you know, the amount of work that was done by the civilization was probably greater than the amount of work that was done for the Great Wall of China. Of course, the Book of Mormon says they had elephants, so we think that <laughs> seven thousand were built had the help of elephants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Jaredites and so forth—they probably were the ones that, that that built these originally, and they had that. Uh, the Nephites never mentioned any elephants, but the uh, but the Jaredites definitely talked about cumulons and curulons and so forth. But the uh, interesting thing here is it says uh, this part. This is actually from American Archaeology. In 2006, exam- examining Hopewell earthworks, he said this part of southern Ohio seemed to have been a gigantic, sacred landscape. <laughs> Why did they say that? Because such a large number of earthworks were built in such a short period of time, but these earthworks were not military. They were not defensive. They did not have the palisades of timbers and so forth like prior works did. These instead were ceremonial. These people were spending most of their time and energy in doing things that would essentially um, 
have to do with their religious practice, their their religious culture. And I think that's just an amazing um, aspect of this. Uh, this is what the earthworks may have looked like as they appeared about 200 AD. This is right in the time frame that we're talking about here with the with right after Christ's visits. And this is the this is the Newark earthworks, which we've talked about before, but it is the largest temple complex on the earth even today. It's four square miles in extent. Mm. And it has the octagon, the circle, and we've already talked about this in previous podcasts, but it has the entire plan of salvation encoded in the largest earthwork that exists on the planet today uh, when it comes down to um, these, these, these massive works. So I just wanted to give you just a quick little you know, um, reason for this. This is, the, this is a portion of this, this gigantic uh, Newark earthworks that has the plan of salvation in it. If you want to go back and look at some of the other um, podcasts that we've done that, that will tell you more about those, uh, how, that, how those earthworks and everything, how that all uh, went into it. But this is the great circle, the great octagon, the ditches and the earth banks are still there. This is the circular part of the great octagon, and it was actually aligned to the moon, which we know is an important aspect of this as well. Uh, we could get into lots of details more about uh, the, the alignments of the of the moon on its rise and set points of the of the, on the horizon on the eighteen and a half year uh, lunar cycles here. And uh, anyway, but that's that's we, that we've that's I just want to give a quick overview <laughs> for that because. This people were, were were just absolutely amazing to what was uh, what was going on there. Why were these people so happy? <laughs> <laughs> How long did it last? <laughs> okay. Well, you know there were dramatic changes uh, in the Nephite culture after Christ because of Christ, and uh, one of the basic causes of this dramatic change was the change of the law. They did away with the longer did away with the Mosaic law and, and he instituted new wonderful changes. Okay, in fact, I gave a presentation at one of his Book of Mormon conferences. Twenty-five evidences that the people of uh, the, the Nephites actually kept the Mosaic law but abandoned it after Christ came. In fact, one of the first things he said from the heavens was, "In me is the law of Moses fulfilled. Ye shall offer up no more the shedding of blood." So that caused dramatic changes. When Squire and Davis surveyed the mounds, they actually broke them into five kinds. The first were regular burial mounds, which, were, which contained skeletons and assortments of possessions like most mounds do in other cultures. They pointed out earthworks made for defense with the uh, deep ditches and the high walls with fences above on the wall, defensive fences on the walls. They pointed out earthworks made for worship, sacred enclosures, and temple mounds, which we will talk about. There are also effigy mounds shaped like animals, people, or things. But they also mentioned mounds covering sacrificial altars, and they diagrammed these altars. Now, this is one of them. Notice that there is an altar at the very base of this mound. And they called them sacrificial altars, and they gave many reasons why they knew they were sacrificial altars. Note that they are mounded over, however. <laughs> so it's interesting that the Nephites just didn't destroy their old sacrificial altars, the ones they'd been making offerings on, but for some reason, they mounded them. They put uh, many layers of earth over them, sand, and, and very fine sand, and finally gravel. 
it was almost as if they were preserving them, perhaps because they honored the Mosaic Law, recognizing now that it pointed to Jesus Christ and his great and last sacrifice, or I've often wondered if they didn't leave them for us to discover them. Um, now, Squires and David said they were indeed sac sacrificial altars uh, and mounds because, first of all, they had altars inside. While previously cleaned off, many altars still contained burned carbonaceous materials on them. In fact, they were made out of burned clay, as they called them. Also, almost all the mounds were found within sacred enclosures. There were only four exceptions, and they were found directly outside of sacred enclosures, which meant they were used for spiritual purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, they found the altars had been subject to high heat. One was even cracked because of the high heat and then mended. Uh, they found saturated soils beneath the altars showing that they had burned a fatty substance, and that was what the altars burned. The, uh, in uh, Mosaic Law offerings, they first of all offered the blood. Then they offered the fat and the uh, vital organs that contained a lot of fat. Actually, the most of the rest of the meat and skin they gave to the priests and to the people, but it was the fat that was burned, and uh, it was so great that it actually saturated the, the soil beneath and left it um, soiled. Yeah. Now, uh, most of these were found in one particular place in Mound City in Ohio. But that was not unusual because in Judea, they were mostly located in one place, which was Jerusalem. Although we do know there were others that the Jews built and there are also others that the Nephites built. My son and I actually visited uh, Mound City and uh, <laughs> we saw some of these. Initially, they found that most of the, the altars inside were six to eight feet so that would be the size for a ram. <laughs> one was two feet, and we know the pork could offer doves and pigeons. And one was extremely long, 50 feet. Uh, but you know, the Jerusalem Temple altar was 48 feet, so that was parallel, and they offered many different offerings at the same time on those. So these are consistent with what what's done in Judea. These altars are buried in a laborious and meticulous manner. As I said, very fine sand, and then... Uh, many things over them. A later excavation in 1920, they found cremated remains there. But they knew they had been moved in and not cremated there. Um, at first they thought, okay, so there were just uh, in a place where people buried their people anyway. But they actually find that uh, people, Clarvigoro from Mexico, a scholar, said they actually brought in cremated remains into a uh, a mound because they knew it was a place for sacrificial altars and so bringing cremated remains in were a way of lifting those remains or making allowing the soul to uh, move into heaven because it was considered a tree of life. In fact, our LDS temples are built the same way. We have a font in the bottom with similitudes of the grave and then each layer up, each uh, layer up, moves up toward the celestial kingdom on the upper level. It represents the tree of life and a way into heaven. The interesting thing is the archaeologists themselves are really puzzled about these sacrificial altars. And this is what Squire and Davis said. Why these altars, some of which we have already seen had been used for considerable periods, were finally heaped over is an embarrassing question and one in which it is impossible to give a satisfactory answer. 
another archaeologist, George Miller, just said the answers are hotly debated. <laughs> In other words, they don't really know why. But we know it is because they abandoned the Mosaic Law. They no more offered sacrifices yes. of the sheep and the goats. And, <laughs> and so by forth. the way, this is a timeline given by George Milner in his book on the mound builders. And he shows, if you look very closely, that these were buried during the time of Christ. Um, so anyway, his timeline puts them yeah. exactly during that time. So, so basically, as, as a recap, so we have these people had all these different altars. Right. But then, right around uh, one, right around the time of Christ, all of a sudden, they just started to disuse them. them. <laughs> they, they came into uh, to uh, to uh, to no more use, and then and then they buried them. Right. They didn't just destroy them; they buried them, and very carefully, which is very interesting. Right. There's another uh, corollary to this, and that is the archaeologists have noted that during the time of the Middle Woodland period, there was a major change in diet. And what did they say that change was? They gave up eating a lot of meat. And they turned instead to eating plants, and particularly seeds. Well, that would be consistent with giving up the Mosaic Law. It became more agricultural. <laughs> yes, and becoming more agricultural. When my son and I visited uh, Mound City, it was very interesting. We also found a, a small bound during this period, uh, made during the same area, and it contained a lot of broken-up smoking pipes. <laughs> And they were just, and they were broken up before being buried. And we thought, you know, this is also an evidence of Christ's influence, and that he would have taught the law of not how smoking is harm harmful to us. Yeah. Actually, when the until the Europeans came, Native Americans did not use tobacco for pleasure; they used it as incense and in relation to medicines. Medicine. They also used it as a sign of friendship and peace. It was only when the Europeans came that they began to use it habitually for pleasure. Yeah, that is really interesting, too. Now, when the Savior commanded them to give up the Mosaic Law, he told them to offer instead a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Well, is there evidence of that? Actually, yes, there is. There is. Among the puzzling finds among the mound builders were large deposits of buried weapons. In fact, one excavation in one mound alone uncovered a large group of copper axes and breastplates, Experts do not see these as caches for future usage. They see these burials as being permanent. And there are many examples. Here is one example shown in George Milner's book, where again this contained breastplates and copper copper breastplates and copper axes. So uh, they buried their weapons. This and is all in Ohio, too. This, this is, is in Ohio. Yes. Yeah. yes. And these weren't the Ammonites. It was during the Middle Woodland period when they buried them. And uh, yeah. so I said, my son and I visit Mound City, and, and we saw this one mound. And when we looked at the plaque, it said that inside, excavators had found bushels of broken up buried weapons. And it's interesting that we did find in the Book of Mormon, describing the Ammonites as burying up their weapons, <laughs> not down, but up, which means they that the habit the in the was to bury them up into a mound as sort of an offering to the Lord, I suspect. Okay. That, that, that's, that's what you call literally putting your, your faith on the altar. <laughs> yes. You know, because these are the things that have kept you alive all these years, but now there's no need for any weapons. Here are weapons. As a matter of fact, when Christ comes, this is what we will do. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. <laughs> so we will also get rid of our weapons out of gratitude that we no longer lead them, need them. Now, in addition, and corollary to, the, corollary to this, the archaeologists have found buried weapons and a great period of peace. As a matter of fact, George Milner said, 
The Middle Woodland period was a time of unusual harmony. The numerous skeletons unearthed at many sites show few signs of the kinds of injuries that occur when people fight. Now, this period goes clear to 400 AD, and we know there were some problems after 200 AD, but uh, there was at least 200 years of total peace. Yeah, no wars. In fact, I was going to read just really quickly in 4th Nephi, um, and, and, and again, this is only one chapter, but basically it's verse 15, came to pass that there was no contention in the land right? because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And there was no envies, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lies, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, no murderers, neither were there Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were one, the children of Christ, and heirs to the, to the kingdom of God. That's so, such a beautiful it is. You know, description, but what would they need weapons for? Right. And it's not just one people who buried their weapons, you know, like, like the anti-Nephi-Lehites basically right. did. This was essentially everyone. So we have caches of, of, these, of these buried weapons all over Ohio. Right. <laughs> In addition to that, uh, they buried their treasures. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, archaeologists puzzles at finding in many Ohio mounds mass buried treasures, mass groupings of buried treasures, which include many precious artifacts. Um, and Milner questions why Ohio was the place where most precious things all ended up, and he said many of them were brought from very distant places. Yes. Um, and he said many came from Men, many. So for some unknown reason, many more objects made of non-local materials ended up in Ohio than anywhere else. The uneven distribution of obsidian, obsidian artifacts and debris is particularly apparent. The overwhelming majority of all the obsidian from sites east of the Mississippi were excavated from only two of the Hopewell site mounds. Okay, so why did they bury their... Um, and they the found <laughs> they find many fine objects where copper, marine shells are buried, huge deposits of non-local objects again. Now I'm going to go on to show, remember to remind you that in when Christ went to the Judea and he taught the people and he and he of course obtained disciples. What did they do? They sold their possessions and laid the money at the feet of the apostles, and then the saints had all things in common. Well, the Book of Mormon tells us the Nephites did a similar thing. While going into little detail, it says they too changed from pursuing wealth as their major goal in life to having all things in common. And I'm sure that they did uh, give to the poor and give their their items to the to the, the leaders of the church. But it seems the Nephites buried as a witness of their newly broken hearts and contrite spirit many of their treasures of wealth. I think, you know, a lot of these treasures may have been things that kind of separated them into classes as well. Right. You know, they have the, uh, the higher class and those who are more rich and those who are more poor and so forth. But by and by having these different things and insignias or whatever or or, or entrapments, if you will, things like pearls and and all kinds of these different things. Um, you kind of indicated your your status in the society, but if you have a society where there is no basic status, you know, or, or everybody just loves each other and they want to, they want they're looking out for each other, um, there would be no need for those kinds of things. Yes, and in fact, the archaeologists found support of that. <laughs> they point out that they noticed a change to a classless society during that time period. 
Nothing indicates that the most influential community members lived very differently than anyone else. A lack of distinction among people distinguished these societies during the middle, uh, midland, midland, middle Midland period. Then he goes on to say, from those that arose hundreds of years later. So they do notice there was a change hundreds of years later. <laughs> and this was pointed out by Christ, who said, Behold, a sorrow me because of the fourth generation, for they will sell me for silver and gold. They'll go back to their old ways. For that which doth corrupt and which thieves can break through and steal. So the archaeological record shows a return after this class of society to a class society. And they say, as a consequence, relations deteriorated to the point of outright warfare. So they actually attribute uh, going back to a class society uh, to the breaking out of warfare. And according to the Book of Mormon, this happened about, uh, says in, in verse 22 of 4th Nephi, says, It came to pass that 200 years had passed away, and the second generation had all passed away, save it was a few. Verse 24 says, And now it was in the 201st year there began to be among those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and of the fine things of the world. And from that time forth they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. So they basically, just like you said, they just they started to break back into classes. Right. There's another great witness of, of the change that came because of Christ. Now remember, he said they should no longer offer animal sacrifice as part of the Mosaic Law, but he didn't just ask them to offer a broken heart and contrite spirit. I think we don't realize that. He asked them to make an offering of righteousness. And what was that offering of righteousness? It actually was temple work for the living and the dead. Now, when the Europeans came, they noticed that Native Americans knew <laughs> temple ritual symbols. They called them Masonic. They thought they were Masonic they thought symbols. They were Masonic things, yes. Uh, but we know they were actually temple ritual symbols. Hugh Nibley, who did a lot of study with Native Americans, wrote this. Thousands of American Indians and Pacific Islanders, including many of the greatest chiefs and wise men, have become Mormons in their time and engaged in the work of the temple. They have been quick to detect that often su- the often surprising parallels between the rites of the temple and their traditions and practices of their own tribes. Far from being disaffected by this discovery, they have rejoiced that at last they could understand what they had inherited from their fathers. <laughs> so this is a powerful witness that the Nephites did, just like the Christians uh, in Judea, they began temple temple work like we have today. And these things aren't recorded in the, the scriptures, but we find other evidences outside of the scriptures that they did, in fact, do this. Can I share with you one well, yes, just a quick ahead. story? Because uh, okay. I had a, a, uh, several friends of mine, in fact, the, the guy that did my very first DVD for me, <laughs> and uh, uh, and and he, he was asked, uh, actually, they had the Hopi Outreach oh, yes. Group, and, um, and they went to, I think it was either first or second mesa of the hopi out here in uh, in new mexico and uh, and and because of the all the work that they had done and and helping the hopi uh, nation basically with the, they would bring in trailer loads of of uh, of goods and and all kinds of things for them that they had uh, that they had gathered and had been donated um they allowed um uh, my friend ray basically to uh, to go in they said we the the shaman uh, the oldest, you know, he he was basically their their leader, their their shaman. 
Um, he said, you know, we, that he is getting very old and uh, may not live many more, many, many more years. And there's none of the younger generation that wanted to actually take that on, and basically because it's a lifetime commitment to be the shaman. And so they were afraid that they might lose their religion. And so they uh, they invited actually him to come in. He's a, a had a video, a really nice video cameras so over the videographer guy, and uh, and he basically went into uh, with a guy by the name of Mike Sweat who actually had been the Hopi outreach guy. Uh, anyway, so he went in, and um, and they invited him to come in and participate in their most sacred ceremony in their most sacred kiva. The kiva being the the, the mm-hmm. where they would actually have these. Um, my friend uh, Ray basically said, um, as they said, they, they, they would do it in their language and then they'd have another person say it again in English so that people could understand it because not many of their own people speak their native language and their native tongue. And the long story short, he said, there were, Roddy said, there were, there were parts of this ceremony that were almost word for word right out of our temple ceremony. <laughs> Said, but at the end of it, um, they had before he could leave the kiva, he had to pull it. It was back in the days when they had the little mini cassettes kind of thing, and so they had to take that out and give it to him because they didn't want to have anybody else to get it into anybody else's hands. But he said, you would be surprised at the at the similarities. I mean, how they would the men and women would sit on different sides of the kiva. They would they would turn and face different directions mm-hmm. as they sat there and so forth, and they would talk about these things, and it was. Just amazing. They had a lot of the information, but again, many of the plain and precious parts had been lost, and they didn't have that anymore. Yes, I had actually heard his presentation, yeah. so thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now as further evidence of these changes, archaeologists have found dramatic changes in the shapes of the earthworks, and... For example, these were some of the original kinds of temple mounds that the Nephites built. Uh, it shows it's built exactly like, you know, the Solomon's Temple up on a mound uh, in a rectangular shape. So this would allow room in the front for these, the sacrificial, uh, for the altars, you know, the incense altar and the labor for washing and the sacrificial altar and then notice that the building at the back very far back was rectangular also which would have allowed space to be divided into a holy place and a holy of holies that was the original structure but there was a great change in the middle woodland period archaeologists find a sudden building of earthworks which featured circles and squares in fact square davis said circles and squares became a constantly recurring pattern now, this is just one of many. I will show you. Okay, what does this mean? Well, the square, for those who, some people are aware of what this, these mean. The square is a symbol for the earth. You know, think of the four corners of the earth. Yeah. The circle, of course, is a symbol for heaven, eternity. So, when the square meets the circle, it represents where heaven meets earth or her earth meets heaven. Okay, um, where does heaven meet earth? It's in our sacred temples where temple work is done for the deceased. These symbols testify that temples are the real gateways from earth into heaven. Now, Milner puts these major earthworks using circles and squares in the middle woodland time period, that time that paralleled the time of Christ. It showed a new type of authoring was being made. Okay, here, here's another example of square meeting circle. Here is another one, and notice this is more complex and actually shows more of the plan of salvation. The square showing the earth. One circle representing the celestial kingdom, a terrestrial kingdom, and then 
finally, the celestial kingdom. Notice, in all of these, there are never any exits out of the final circle. <laughs> okay. Okay. These are four that my son and I visited. They, were, they have a little different shapes, but it's still basically the same pattern. Matter of fact, the acreages of all the squares are exactly the same. They're exactly the same distance from each other. Um, but they were uh, left by the mound builders after Christ came to show that they were participating in works yeah. of salvation. Many of those are actually left in the in the Paint River Valley, <laughs> and they and, and many of them are ninety degree um, angled at different angles and so forth. Even though they may be you know dozens of miles apart, it's just amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Now, many people may not realize that the same sacred symbolism predominates in our Latter-day temples. Temples, they witness the same truths where heaven meets the earth. I'm going to show you just a few, but they're found in all temples. Okay, here's the Cedar City Temple. If you'll notice the window in the back, is a square with a circle inside it. This is the fence of the San Diego Temple. Notice the square with a circle inside it. Salt Lake Temple, these are on the outside, but in the interior, also, <laughs> there are many areas where the circle and the square are united. Okay, but they're also earthworks shaped like octagons. Now, the octagon had a similar meaning as a square, but it had an additional meaning. It's a sign that the Abrahamic covenant, which God has established with man while on earth, and is to prepare him for his blessings in heaven. Now, I know some of those uh, octagonal shapes, some people believe, is the Melchizedek seal. And I don't say that's not true. Abraham and Melchizedek were very closely related. <laughs> As you know, Abraham paid tithing to Melchizedek. And so Abraham was this witness of the covenant, and Melchizedek was the seal, so that could go together. But the reason it represents the Abrahamic covenant is because the number eight is all over the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, let's come on to show you. Okay, this is one sign of the octagon. Here's another one showing that they began to be developed. The prophets and Jesus Christ himself taught the Abrahamic covenant to the Nephites. The early Christians knew that the octagon was a symbol for the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, for example, it began with circumcision on the eighth day, and it was part of the Mosaic Law. Joseph Smith said that circumcision was a sign children were not accountable before God until the age of eight I will establish a covenant of circumcision. It shall be my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee, that thou mayest know forever that children are not accountable before me until they are eight years old. And there's going to be something else comes up which makes this very significant. Okay, so then uh, we, we abandoned circumcision and changed to baptism at the eighth year. Um, so this became the sole sign of entrance into God's covenant people or kingdom. Grace Vlam was an artistic symbol expert who lived in Europe for many years, and she saw many early Christian baptistries, and she found they all had the same pattern of the number of eight. Here's a picture of two of them that she found. Finally, she found this poem in one area that had eight columns and explains why. The temple of eight niches rose up for holy use. The octagonal, fa octagonal fountain is appropriate for that rite. It was fitting that the house of holy baptism rise up in this number by which true salvation returned to mankind. You see, it's talking about true salvation came because Christ was resurrected on the eighth day. Remember, there was a seven-day week, but he was resurrected the morning after the Sabbath, the beginning of the new week the eighth day. That's why we now have our Sabbath on Sunday, because it celebrates his resurrection. 
The poem goes on to say, With the light of Christ rising again in Christ who opens the gates of death and raises the dead from their tombs, freeing confessed sinner from the stain of sin, cleansing them with the water with a pure flowing font. So, baptism is to cleanse us and bring us rebirth, but Jesus' death and resurrection provided the true cleansing and became the true gate to rebirth. Baptism is in similitude of Christ's death and resurrection, which was on the eighth day. The Nephites' usage of the octagon verifies they knew the Abrahamic covenant would replace the law of Moses. So wider usage after Christ also verifies that it had. And again, we also use the octagon in our temples, and it signifies the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I had the chance to serve in the Palmyra temple, and I saw this this sign day after day going into the baptistry. There are eight layers of the octagon, beginning at the ceiling, uh, with eight, eight going on down to the the fence around the uh, railing around the font to the font itself. In fact, there are many temples now built with this octagon. (laughs) They're all over. Okay, but it's not only found in the baptistry. The ceiling of the Provo City Center Temple Celestial Room has an octagon. It's also found on temple altars. It is usually a pattern of three symbols on the two long sides of the altar and one each on the ends, making eight. Okay, the New Rome Temple is one. This, if you notice... It has three of the same symbols on each side of the long altar and then one on the end, making eight. So the altars also, many of the altars also have the symbol of eight. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, and symbolizes, you know, uh, the time, you know, the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, here's another example of the high banks of uh, this used by the Nephites. And... uh, Again, most of the large earthworks in Ohio are dated to the Middle Woodland times and form circles, squares, and octagons. Now, this is the final clinch pin of the significance of the number eight. It began with circumcision on the eighth day. Christ's resurrection occurred on the eighth day. Baptism was changed in the eighth year. Celestial glory will happen at the beginning of the eighth age. (laughs) So those who inherit celestial glory will inherit it at the beginning of the eighth age. This will be after the millennium or the 7,000 years. The fully righteous will then receive the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, eternal life or lives. And you know what that means? It then means we will become accountable. (laughs) Finally reach accountability, the age of accountability. Wow. Okay, that's what I say. Time of entering God's covenant people time of entering into God's kingdom, time of entering into celestial glory, entering into the celestial kingdom is the final time of accountability. So, these are many, many evidences that we have in physical evidence. Archaeologists have found, of course, they don't realize their spiritual significance, but we do, that the people, the Nephites, did abandon the Mosaic Law. They did begin to offer offerings of righteousness, temple work like we do today. Wow. <laughs> that is that is just beautiful. I, lo- I love that the, the the symbolism there, you know, basically you know the he- where heaven and earth meet, and uh, and then the, and there's the great mediator, which is that you know from a from a, a geometric standpoint, you know from a from a square to a circle, the intermediary between those right. two is a is an 
octagon. octagon. Okay. Um, this is and, and it's the same on the on the spires of, for example, the uh, the the Kirtland and Nauvoo temples, both of which were shown to Joseph Smith in vision. Yes. And so the base of the spire is a square or a rectangle, and then it goes into an octagonal shape, and then it goes into a half dome or a dome, and then it gets and it fills it up with a little with a ball <laughs> at the top, a circle at the top. Yeah, the symbolism existed then and exists now in our temple. So it's, I think that yeah. it's, re, it's rejoicing to see these same symbols in our temples. It really is just amazing. So uh, to, so basically to finish up here, um, they talked about these, uh, the, having the, the fine things of the earth. They started to uh, now and... and, and yeah, it, it's it's just sad to see that this that this period of time, almost two months, two hundred years, is covered in really about a page and a half. <laughs> of the, I know. Of the the Book of Mormon. One of my friends say, "Fourth Nephi is so short." So, but this is what helps fill it in. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. But then we see that uh, that 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 peace does not last forever. People are people, and they start to forget about God, and eventually. Um, they started doing the costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls, which we talked about before, um, to the point that they started to actually now take the the believers and they cast them into the fire. But they but they these believers were so powerful in their spirit that they actually would not burn. Um, they would th- they would cast them into a dens of wild beasts. They would play with the wild beasts even as a child with a lamb. Uh, this is verse th- thirty three. Nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts, for they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and do all manner of iniquity, and he did smite upon the people of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are things that are going on after Christ comes. And then you basically they break up into Lamanites and Jacobites and Josephites and Zoramites, and then the Gadianton robbers come back in. Um, if the if the Book of Mormon is a type and shadow of all these things, these are things that will happen at the end of the of the uh, of the millennium. When Satan is released again, or after Christ comes, and there's the the 200 years of peace, then there's going to be a little time where Satan. Or a thousand be, years of peace. <laughs> thousand years of peace there, and then Satan will be released again, and then it will be the final um, hurrah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> final time to test us one last yep. time. <laughs> so 300 years, and verse 45, 300 years had passed away. Uh, the Gideon and Robert did spread over all the face of the land that there were none that were righteous, save it was the disciples of Jesus. And gold and silver did they lay up and store in abundance and did traffic in all manner of traffic. Um, and uh, then Amron, then he, uh, he receives these sacred records. He realizes that time is short because when the people choose iniquity, God cannot allow wicked people to remain on his covenant and promised land. He knows that there's going to be a great uh, cleansing or sweeping off of those people off of the land. So he gathers Amron, being constrained by the Holy Ghost, did hide up the records which were sacred. Yea, even all the sacred records from which, which had been handed down from generation to generation which were sacred, even until 320th year from the coming of Christ. He did hide them up unto the Lord, that they might come again unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, according to the prophecies and the promises of the Lord." And that's what the, the entire Book of Mormon is all about, those prophecies and those promises. Right. About this land that we could learn from them. That we don't go down the same road, but of course we are going down the same road. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just telling us uh, I mean, they we're going to go down the same road and so be prepared for it. They were warned by the Jaredites, but they still went down that same road and we're going yeah. down the same road. 
Yes. But we have actually three cultures who've have done it. The Adamic culture, the Jaredite culture, the Nephite right. culture, and now it's us. <laughs> it's our turn to go through this process. And, and course, so we have the record of the Jews too in the Bible. So. Yep. So if you want to know what's going to happen next, uh, read the Book of Mormon because that is the that is the blueprint, is the pattern. Yes. This is what tells us exactly what will happen next. So, brother sister, I hope that you're enjoying this. Lynette, that was just amazing. Do you have any final things that you wanted to share with us? No, I I'm just grateful to be here and to have the chance to share because I think this people should know these evidences which do support the Book of Mormon over and over and over again. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating that, that to, to see the law of Moses, how it was being performed, and then how it was instantly shut down, and they didn't do that anymore. And there's actually uh, evidence in the archaeological record to support that claim. Just beautiful, wonderful, wonderful research. Thank you so much, Lynette, for your your, your time and your energy and your efforts. And everybody, so uh, we're, we're well, excited. You and, you and Wayne may open the door for me. And I'm <laughs> grateful to come in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to have uh, a couple of things coming up here in the next uh, couple of weeks. We have um, Paul Horvath, and uh, we're going to be talking about metallurgy and so forth. We'll probably have Lynette in another time about the Hill Cumorah and some things there that she's got that we're gonna, she's going to share with us. But I think you're going to really love these, uh, these, these uh, ones about the, uh, the metallurgy of the Book of Mormon, and specifically how the, the Jaredites, they, they uh, moved massive heaps of earth to get the, the metals and so forth. So... Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about those kind of things. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking about the next few weeks about uh, the evidence for Noah's flood in the Book of Mormon as well. And we've got some uh, some other fantastic uh, uh, presentations coming up. So Great. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, uh, everybody. And uh, we'll, hopefully you'll be able to tune in next week. And uh, we'll get more good stuff. Book of Mormon is true. We love it. And we bear testimony of that. Thank you, everybody. Mike is awesome, Mike is awesome. Do 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 do. You can find the new virtual expo at Book of Mormon Evidence Streaming.com. We advertise 60 new videos, but actually almost double that amount, so you'll have plenty of inspiration to carry you through the fall and into the holiday season. Don't miss out on more than 110 new videos now in our library. Special guest speakers are Glenn Beck. David Barton and Tim Ballard. You'll have access for three whole months as well as receiving two bonuses that will offset your complete subscription cost. The first is The Destruction of Christ's Death, which is a two-hour streaming video by Rod Meldrum, which is a $20 value, as well as his new 40-page ebook called Prophecies and Promises. What did Joseph know? That's a $15 value. We're excited for you to join us. Okay, so this is the break. <laughs> <laughs> break, break. I'll keep it rolling. Just hurry, just hurry.